You know what? God is good. And all the time, God is good. In every circumstance, he is good. And we can affirm that, right? So take your copy of God's word and turn with me to Ephesians 5. And I'm going to try to put this in a place where I don't have to be right in it. That'll be good. Everybody hear me okay? Yes, okay. You know what this does? It means I can't walk around. Do you realize how much anxiety I just gained? Ephesians 5 is where we're going to be. And I'll tell you what, I wasn't going to pray yet, but we're going to pray. So let's pray. So, Father, we do uh, affirm your goodness. Oh, Lord, we proclaim your goodness. Um, We exalt you as the Holy One. And, Lord, I'm just reminded of how often I am prone to sing lyrics that proclaim your holiness. But, Lord, um, I'm not as aware of your holiness in my life and in my heart and in my mind as I should be. So, Lord, I pray that today as we come to your holy word, that you would reveal your holy presence to us and that through us we would be captivated anew by your holiness. And, Lord, I pray that our response to that would be appropriate because your name is do that. Lord, may we offer our lives as living sacrifices to you. Oh, God, may you convict us of sin today. Oh, God, may you remind us of your goodness to us in the gospel. And, Lord, may we exalt the name of Jesus today. And just rest in all that he has accomplished for us to satisfy your legal demands, Lord. And just to embrace and um, understand in a new way today our identity in him. Uh, Lord, would you do that through your word today? And we thank you that we can pray that and we can have confidence that you will do that because of the presence of your spirit here with us today. Uh, So God, thank you for your word and thank you for your spirit's help in this task as we share in this time in the word together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a few weeks ago, Gerald opened his sermon beginning this passage in Ephesians 5 with a question that I want to call us back to. And that question was a very simple one in theory, but a very difficult one if we truly listen and lean into the question and consider it. And the question is this, who are you? Who are we as believers? Who are we as Christians? Who are we as the church corporately? Who are we as Christians individually? And I just want to say this morning that I'm afraid that the American evangelical church has an identity crisis. It has an identity crisis. The greatest danger for the church is the very basis for that identity crisis. And it is this. It's something called Syncretism. Syncretism is a word that we may not be um, very familiar with in the onset of it, but we are we are we are aware and, and familiar with a part of the word sync. We know what it is to sync up because we're constantly syncing up all of our mobile devices together, bringing them into sync with one another. And although we have been charged with the task to contextualize the gospel, if you've been around me any time, you know that I talk about this a lot. Our stewardship of the gospel as believers includes um, our task in contextualizing the gospel. And that means to faithfully proclaim the gospel, but in a meaningful way to the audience to which we proclaim it. Okay, so we are tasked with the job of contextualizing the gospel, but we need to be careful that we do not over-contextualize the gospel and sink the gospel with false philosophies. And we're in danger of doing this, and I believe the fact that we have done it and we continue to do it has caused us to have this identity crisis. And so our culture is saturated with pseudo-gospels, false gospels that carry a hint of the truth of the gospel, but the gospel has been changed so that it can partner with elements of our culture. So we come to terms like the prosperity gospel. We think about the social gospel. We think about a political gospel or an identity gospel that is rooted in whatever our identity is. 
You see, here's the truth. When the gospel becomes conflated with other aspects of our culture, it not only becomes watered down, it loses its luster. It loses its brilliance. And that is because the gospel shines bright because it proclaims the supremacy of Christ. The gospel shines bright because it reveals the glory of Christ. And when we allow the gospel to become partnered up or coupled up with other elements of the culture, what results is majoring on the cultural aspect and a diminishing of the gospel. And brothers and sisters, we are called to this, sta- this task of stewardship, of proclaiming the gospel, but inherent to that is, is protecting the sanctity of the purity of the gospel. Everybody with me? Amen? We need to be reminded of who we are constantly, constantly. And I'm thankful for this section in Ephesians 5 where we've had multiple weeks to consider this question. And today we are going to consider this question more, but maybe from a different angle. I would go back to Peter's words in 1 Peter 2 in considering who we are. Let's begin with this reminder this morning of who we are. First, Peter says there in in, in 1 Peter 2, he says, we are a chosen race. God in his sovereignty has chosen us, set us apart. And this is by grace, through faith, nothing to do with us so that we may boast in it. We are his chosen people. Secondly, he says that we are a royal priesthood. And that description of our identity reminds us of a couple of key important truths. Number one, that he is our inheritance, just just as was the case with the Old Testament uh, priesthood. They had no earthly inheritance. They had no earthly lot. He is our lot. He is our portion. He is our inheritance. But it also tells us something else about our identity, that our identity is to be sacrificially lived out for the sake of those around us. We are to mediate the blessings of God to the world around us. This is who we are as God's people. We are a royal priesthood, his priests. Next, he says that we are a holy nation, a holy nation. The essence of our identity is his reflection. We not only reflect him, that is the essence of our identity. Our very identity is the reflection of God. We are made in his image that is marred in sin. But as he redeems us, he does the work through the spirit to restore that ability to reflect his image to the world. And what we reflect is his holiness. Peter goes on to say that we are a people for his own possession. This reminds us, brothers and sisters, that we are not our own We are blood bought, blood purchased for our king and for the mission of our king's kingdom. We are purchased for his kingdom. And this flies in the face of how the culture would seek to help us understand our identity. The culture would tell us that we are our own and that we should follow our hearts and our desires and find our purpose from within. No, if we are in Christ, we are purchased by him for him. He goes on to say that we are proclaimers of his excellencies. You see, we are ambassadors of his kingdom. And I struggle with this. I struggle with this aspect of the of this identity because I see a deficiency in myself, an insufficiency. How is someone like me that there is nothing excellent about me? How do I possibly reflect the excellencies of him who called me out of darkness into his marvelous light? This is the way we do it. By proclaiming his worth. We are his people and we are tasked with proclaiming the supreme work worth of Christ. You see, worship is worth ship. We worship in all that we do for the purpose of proclaiming his glory. We are ambassadors of his kingdom. And finally, we are called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And that brings us to the passage today that I believe centers upon our identity and the word that we're going to hear reflected over and over and over that has to do with our very identity and mission in the world and place in the world is this word light. 
And so we need to consider that this morning. And we're going to break this passage. We're going to be working through verses 7 through 17. We'll begin by reading beginning in verse 1 so we get the context back in just a moment. But as we work uh, from verses 7 through 17... We are going to see three aspects in each section. There are three sections, and in each section, we're going to see three things. So for the purpose of taking notes, I'm giving you a roadmap right now. Okay, you can write this down. We are going to see first in each section a warning to us. And this is a warning to the people of God. This is a warning to those who fit the description that we just read in Christ. Okay, so we see a warning. Second, we see a reminder, but that reminder has to do with our identity. It's a reminder of who we are. Okay, and then third, we are going to see a ground or a foundation for heeding the warning and for living out the identity. Okay, so we're going to see a warning, a reminder of who we are. And then what is the ground for that? What is the foundation for that? Heeding it and living it out. All right. So let's begin to read together, beginning in verse one of chapter five, and we'll start over in verse one. And we'll just read through verse, let's just read all the way through verse 21. Gerald has done this a couple of times. I'm not going to work all the way to 21 today, but let's just hear it all in context. Follow along with me there. Verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And picking up in our passage for today, therefore, do not be become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here's the first Section. This is what I want us to see this morning. The first element of our identity that this passage reveals to us in light of the first six verses comes in verses seven through ten. And that it is that we are children of light united with Christ, children of light united with Christ. And we see the first warning there in verse seven. Look back at it with me. Therefore, do not become partners with them. First, we need to understand who the them is, right? Who is it speaking of there when it says, do not be partners with them? Well, that's given to us in the context in those first six verses. It can be summarized in this title that's given there, the sons of disobedience. But it's also expanded for us in this list of characteristics that mark the sons of disobedience. Look back, beginning in verse three again. We see sexual immorality. We see impurity, covetousness. Um, filthiness, foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, um, sexual immorality, again, covetousness, idolatry. All of that is summed up in this word. Them. Paul is telling us as the church and warning us that we are not to even be partners with them. This word partners carries with it the idea of joint partakers. And here is the truth, brothers and sisters, and something that I think we need to understand working through this passage 
is that we have no problem most of the time stiff arming what is obviously darkness. But we are repeatedly warned throughout the scriptures that if we are not careful and if we do not continue to abide in the truth, we absolutely will drift into darkness in ways that will deceive us. Can we say this morning that we don't want to be so prideful as to say that I will not be a part of darkness? We need to be on guard. And this is the way that Paul says this here. It's not only don't participate in these things or don't do these things. It is do not partner with them. And I want us to understand that this is not a call to avoid them. Okay, the scriptures call us into mission into the world. So Paul is not saying that we build high walls to section ourselves or, or partition ourselves from the world or from them. But it does tell us that we need to avoid joining in their sinful activity. I believe that he unpacks this thought a little bit better in 2 Corinthians 6.14. He says this there. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, this is a statement to all believers. Okay. This is all believers. It's a warning to us. Do not be unequally yoked. The illustration gives us a word picture, gives us an illustration of two un, uh, unequally yoked animals trying to fulfill a task together. The yoke would, would put them together, but the animals, one is maybe more stronger than the other, so it's dragging it, or more likely is the case that the two animals have two different agendas, and they're constantly fighting each other instead of pursuing the same common objective. Paul goes on to say there in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 6.14, he says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And the answer is none. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? We know that it's a scientific reality that lightness and dark cannot coexist together. So Paul uses that illustration there. You see, we, it's a picture of us being yoked together with them in producing the same fruit. It is a spiritual incompatibility is the picture that's here. I read one commentator put it this way. He says, do not form any relationship, whether temporary or permanent, with unbelievers that would lead to a compromise of Christian standards or jeopardize consistency in Christian witness. This is the warning to us that if we are not careful, we will become partners with those who are not pursuing the same objective that we are being the kingdom of God. And we need to be on guard with that. And the truth is, we have different goals, different objectives. So I've been thinking a lot about this this week. What does it look like to be partners with them? How might we be in danger of partnering with the, with the, with, with the darkness? Well, let's be reminded of that list of characteristics. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, corrupt speech. So I've broken this down on an individual level, on a work level or a vocational level. And then I think one that's hot in our culture today is a political level. Let me walk through these and, and share with you how I believe we can become partners with the darkness in all of these areas. First, as an individual. First is the media we choose to consume. We become partners with the darkness if we choose to consume things that begin to shape our hearts in certain ways. The way we allow the culture to shape our appetite, our desire and humor. I've told the students before, I've, I've warned them about the danger specifically of the app TikTok. And what I've told them is this, is that my concern for that is not so much uh, the, the, the explicit content that may be there. My, my fear for that and my anxiety for our young people consuming that is more so the way that it shapes our heart. The way that it shapes our appetites, the things that we long for, the things that we desire, it shapes our desire, the things that we want. It shapes our humor and the things that we find humorous. And when we partner with the darkness that way, it shapes us in a way that's not pursuing the kingdom of God. What else? The lifestyle we choose to pursue. How about the way I and or my family shapes our calendar? And the way that we spend our money, parents, the way that we raise our children, do we partner with darkness in the way that we do those things? What about in the context of our work? The objectives I've set for my work, 
Do you allow others outside the kingdom of God to shape your own objectives in the way that you pursue your work? Ultimately, why do we work? To glorify God and to serve others. Right? And sometimes we can allow the world to shape our objectives in work that take away from our mission there. The way that I engage in conversations within the context of work. What about my attitude toward my work and toward others that can be shaped there? My thoughts and my thought life. My adopted ethical framework. I begin to adopt the ethical framework around me because everybody else has accepted it, although I am violating the law of Christ. It would be very easy to do. What about this issue of politics? Well, first, what I, uh, who and what I champion or endorse. I'm afraid that we betray the character of Christ and who we link up with. And this is everywhere in the political system. We need to be aware of that. What about my speech and attitude towards others? I begin to adopt ways and patterns of the way that I go about conversations and engaging the community based on politics rather than based on the scriptures and the spirit's work within me. What about the way I begin to view others, those on the other side of the aisle? Is that shaped by the scriptures or have I partnered with darkness in shaping that view of those who disagree with me? I begin to accept and even celebrate certain means so that a desired end would be achieved. This is a warning to us, brothers and sisters, not to stand against what is overtly dark to us, but to guard our own hearts from drifting into partnerships with darkness. And it's one I think that we need to heed, especially in light of our identity. And that's what we see next in verses 8 and 9, this reminder of who we are. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Do you hear that contrast? For at one time you were darkness, but now, this is an identity statement, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, he says. Verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. There's this contrast. You were at one time something, but now you are something completely different. You are a new creation in Christ. So at one time, your life was marked by darkness. Now it is marked by light. I think of what, uh, going back, and we're going we're gonna to jump back to portions of Ephesians leading up to this several times this morning. Here's the first one. If you look back at Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, this is how Paul impacts this thought. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that, listen, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now there's a change that happens. There's a transition that's happened. Now that you are in Christ, but now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And what is the difference? It's summed up in this word light. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. I think of what Paul writes in Colossians 1.13. He says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. All of those realities that Paul speaks to at the end of that prayer in Colossians are already true of us. That is who we are in Christ. And the process of sanctification that the spirit works within us is to grow us up into those already set realities. We are already light in the Lord. Now the spirit is doing the work to align us with that reality. We are light. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. But notice this. It says light in the Lord. We are not light in ourselves. We are not light because we all of a sudden begin to make the right decisions. We are light in Christ. We are united with him. Romans 6, 5 says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Back in Ephesians 3, 6. Paul says this, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Do you see the contrast? What is the warning just been spoken to us? Do not become partners with the darkness. And the central reason why we cannot become partners with the with the with the darkness is because we already are partners in Christ. 
And we cannot be partners with the darkness and with Christ. We are partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. You see, we cannot be united with Christ and partakers in him and at the same time be partakers of the darkness. So what is the reason why we cannot partner with the, with the, with the darkness? Paul lets us know that it is based in our identity. We cannot partner with the darkness because we're already partners united with Christ. So Paul commands those who are in Christ to walk in accordance with the reality of our identity as children of light, he goes on to say. Those who possess and exhibit the characteristics of light reflect our father of light. Cheryl talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We are to be like our father. And the more we are, we are growing in our relationship with him, the more we are shaped by his image. The spirit conforms us to the image of Christ. And so the more we grow in that way, the more our lives are going to mark the reality and bear forth the reality of light that we now are in him. And this idea of walking here doesn't have the idea or carry the idea that it's just the actions that we take. It is the purposeful pattern of living. There's an intentionality about this, that we are to be people who are intentional to reflect the light of Christ in all things. Going back to Ephesians 4, this is how Paul has already unpacked this idea. If you want to flip back there and look at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk, there's that word walk, as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And listen to verse 24 and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Here's the truth, brothers and sisters. We often can compartmentalize our sense of identity. That means this, that I am Christian in some areas, but not all. I am to live out a Christian identity in some context, but not in all. But when I think about that thought and our tendency to do that, my mind goes back to one word that Paul uses in the first chapter of Colossians. It's right there in the middle of the Christ hymn as he's holding up who Christ is. And it is the word preeminent. He says there that Jesus is preeminent in all things. That word, maybe more than any other, has challenged me over the past few years. I think about it all the time. And I think about it this way. If it is true that Jesus is preeminent, am I walking in rhythm with his preeminence? You see, when we talk about Jesus as preeminent, he is first and supreme in all things. We cannot compartmentalize our Christianity to be one aspect of our identity. Christ is the identity. Amen? He is to be preeminent in the totality of who we are. And this is the work that the Spirit is doing. We cannot reserve aspects of our life for ourselves to live however we want. He is preeminent. And so how do we measure this? Well, Paul tells us it's through fruit. It's the fruit that we bear. The fruit of light, get this, is produced through the way of light. Imagine that. The fruit of light is produced through the way of light. And he sums that up in three beautiful words here. That's goodness, righteousness, and truth. It is goodness, righteousness, and truth that makes up the way of light that bears the fruit of light. You know, the world often lives by a code, and that code goes like this. The end justifies the means. And sometimes I'm afraid that one of the ways that we as believers can partner with the darkness is we begin to hold on to that mantra for ourselves. And we have good intentions because we really want to see God's kingdom be built. But we begin to partner with darkness in the way that we pursue that. Our king, however, has already secured the end. 
I thought I would get an amen at that. I'll say it again. Our king has already secured the end. And he intends for us to not diminish the means by which we live in order to move toward that end. Rather, that end is the very thing that shapes the means by which we live toward it. The end is holiness. The end is the culmination of his kingdom for eternity. The end for us as believers is our glorification. And so what does John say? In 1 John 3, where he says that one day we will be like him, the very next statement he says, so therefore may we pursue purity as he is pure. The way that we produce the fruit of light is not by pursuing his end and diminishing the means. It is by following the way of Christ that shapes the means of our life. Earlier this week on Social media, I posted this as I was thinking about this thought. Children of light cannot advance the kingdom of light by partnering with the darkness. We need to feel that. Participating in the ways and works of darkness, even if one believes the objective to be noble and good, will only produce the worthless, rotten fruit of darkness. It can never produce the fruit of light. Only goodness, righteousness, and truth can do that. We must trust God's word and follow the superior way of Christ. You see, we must not only... I want to go back to a statement that Gerald made last week that has stuck with me, and this is it. We must not take lightly what God takes seriously. Even if we are justifying the ends that we are pursuing, God takes the means of our lives seriously. And because we trust him with the end, we are free to submit our our means to him fully. He has redeemed us and he has purchased us in order to purify us and make us holy. And here's just the raw truth, brothers and sisters. Often the way of Christ is going to feel out of place in this world. And we are going to be deceived into thinking that we have to join into the ways of the world in order to battle for the kingdom of Christ. And we need to be careful to reject that. We have been called to live a way. And that way is marked by Christ. Jesus knew this. This is why he guaranteed his disciples for their sake and for ours that in this world you will have trouble. I do not understand why Christians recoil in shock that when they live the way of Christ that the world does not agree and persecutes them. Was not Jesus clear with us that this was going to be the response of the world? But what does the second half of Jesus' statement say there? But take heart. I have overcome the world. The end is secure. So we don't have to take up the world's ways in order to work through a desired end. The end is secure. So continue to live the way of Christ. You see, children of light will produce the fruit of light. And light makes its presence known in the expression of goodness, righteousness, and truth. So listen to this very carefully. We must not just desire an end that is good, right, and true. Our standard of living is to be rooted in goodness, righteousness, and truth. So what is the ground for this? Verse 10. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The ground is found in this discernment that we need. And this discernment is a gift of the spirit given within the context of relationship through a deepening knowledge of God. We need discernment to be able to to do this, to measure the fruit of our lives and to live this out. I love the prayer of Paul for the Philippian church. It's Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Listen to what Paul prays there. And it's all about discernment. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He doesn't he doesn't tell us what kind of love here. I think he's just talking about love. 
that our love would abound more and more as we are conformed to the image of Christ and as we experience his love and his love is perfected within us. And a byproduct of that is that we will gain discernment to approve what is excellent. What is excellent? What accords with his excellence. So that we may choose that path, so that we may respond in that way. It's what accords with his goodness, his righteousness, and truth. We should desire discernment. We should desire discernment because our greatest desire is to please him. Amen? The second aspect of our identity that's here, and I promise that was the longest one. The second aspect to our identity is this. We are agents of light raised to new life. Agents of light raised to new life. And we're going to look at verses 11 through 14. Let's look at verses 11 and 12 first. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Do you hear the warning that's there? Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So he says, take no part. Once again, he's speaking of complicity here. He's not talking about participating in an overt way and joining into these characteristics and sin. He's talking about the way that we can drift into it. Take no part. And he offers another contrast here between unfruitful works of darkness and the fruit of light. Okay? And here is the warning that we need to hear. And we constantly need to be sobered by this truth that the fruit of darkness will always be corrupt Rotten and worthless, no matter how much we try to baptize it. The fruit of darkness will always be corrupt, rotten and worthless. We need to know that Paul writes in Romans 6, 20 through 23. Most of us have verse 23 memorized, but listen to the context. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is what? Death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. Then comes verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Anytime we... We, we give ourselves over to sin. Anytime we present our members to sin, anytime we partner with sin, the wage that it will pay us is death. And brothers and sisters, it always deceives us by telling us that it's going to give us something that it cannot give. The wage is always death. The fruit it bears is always worthless and rotten, no matter how good our intentions may be. It's rotten. But instead, Paul says... That we are to expose them. One commentator put it this way. We are to expose in order to reveal their dark and worthless quality. You see, when when light shines on the fruit, it exposes it for the worthlessness that it is. Okay? Many of you will know, many of you know, JT alluded to it, the report that came out this past Sunday. Uh, the SBC report about abuse and how abuse has been handled or not handled and covered up for far too long in our convention. And I'm not going to take a long time to talk about that this morning. You will hear more from your pastors and elders on that. We are talking about, about that right now and praying through that. And our church has already begun to respond in some ways. So we will talk more. But I wanted to use that as an illustration. That report revealed the fact that not only were those who were abused treated in in horrible ways and just crushed in many ways. The way that we sought to deal with the sin that was apparent was to push it further into the darkness. And so we find that a list has been compiled for almost 20 years of known abusers. And instead of making that known and bringing it to light so that churches would know that, so that we would know how to shepherd people well, it was pushed deeper into darkness. No matter how well-intentioned that was, it has produced worthless, rotten fruit. And we are feeling the consequences of that today. F.F. Bruce says it this way, exposure to light is perhaps the best way to make the unfruitful works of darkness wither and die. And that should be our desire when it comes to darkness and the fruit that it bears. So there's a reminder here. Who are we? Light cannot help but expose darkness because that is the essence of what it is to be light. 
Light will always expose the darkness. It will light it up. It will expose what the darkness is shrouding and covering. So as children of light, where we go, light goes, or it should. If we are people of light, everywhere we go, light should go with us. His light should shine everywhere we go. And so what we see in verses 13 and the beginning of 14 there is that we are, write this down if you're taking notes, we are agents of light. We are agents of light. Look at verse 13. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light. In this, Paul gives us two effects of light on darkness, and both of them are important. The first one is that light makes visible. We understand that. I don't have to unpack that. But I see this somewhere else in Scripture where this light and dark contrast is spoken of, especially in uh, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, verse 18. Beginning in verse 18, he writes this. He says, whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Verse verse 19, he continues this thought. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see, darkness hides the ugly realities of evil. And one of the functions of light is that it exposes those realities. So we understand that. But there is a second function of light that's given here. And we can't think about what Paul is saying here scientifically. okay? because this is a hard saying here. The second part, he says here, is for anything that becomes visible is Light. So the second function of light is that light makes what is visible light. That's hard for us to understand because we know scientifically that's not necessarily true. When light hits something that was dark, it doesn't turn it into a light. Right. But we need to think through this spiritually. The illustration that keeps coming to my mind is that of our moon. Right. Our moon is not a source of light. It is shrouded in darkness most of the time. And when it is hidden from the sun's light, we can't even see that it's there. We would not even know that it's there. But let me tell you something. Sometimes the moon is so bright that it's almost like daytime outside in some ways. I can see everything that's happening. It's the reflection of the sun off of the moon. It's as if the sun is shining on that which was dark. And it not only exposes the moon, but it makes it light, makes it light as well. So spiritually speaking, the light of the gospel not only exposes darkness, it also has the power to transform This is the nature of light. Okay, light actually transforms what it illumines into light. And brothers and sisters, this is the reality that shapes our missional confidence in the world. That the light penetrates the darkness and awakens dead sinners to new life in Christ. Sometimes I'm afraid that we stop short at exposing the darkness and that's the sum of our mission. We need to believe fully in the gospel that we are not only to expose light, we are to take light to the darkness so that Jesus can redeem because that's what he does. And that's who we are, agents of his light. But once again, we must not become partners with the darkness and how we understand how we go about exposing the darkness. Our ultimate purpose in exposing the darkness is so that the, the worthlessness of its fruit would be exposed and we can point hearts to the supreme worth of Jesus. So we see that the same light that exposes the worthlessness of the darkness also reveals the reality of the beauty of the gospel. So what is this all grounded in? The final part of verse 14 there. Look at it with me. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. The grounding for this is the reality that that same light is what shone into the darkness of our own hearts and awakened us to new life in Christ as well. The same light that continues to illuminate our hearts now as we walk in the spirit. This passage right here, most commentators agree. Well, everybody knows that it's not unique to Paul because he puts it in quotations here. This is not something that Paul wrote. 
It does seem to include uh, aspects or phrases of some Old Testament passages, but I don't think Paul is just quoting the Old Testament. Most scholars believe that this was a hymn or a saying that was used by the early church um, that they would speak after someone was baptized. That someone would come out of the baptismal waters and the whole church would join in together in reciting, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And what it did, its function, is it served as a reminder of the essence of our new identity in Christ, and that is resurrection. We are raised with him to walk in the newness of life. And his light empowers this new life. We are agents of his light. And it goes on to say that Christ will shine. Not only has he shined, he will shine. Turn over to Ephesians 1. Just for a moment, look, look back at the prayer there that Paul prays. Be reminded of what he prays for these believers and for us. Verse 17, Paul says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of what? Glory. That's a, it's a word that's steeped in light to the father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Now, wait a second. He's already given us his spirit if we are in Christ. Yes. Paul is not saying that you would receive a new manifestation of the spirit or a new imparting of the spirit. You already have it. He's praying that the spirit would fulfill the function for which he was placed in our lives. Namely, that the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him would illuminate the eyes of our hearts that we may know every spiritual reality that is ours in Christ Jesus. So Paul goes on to pray, not only has that light shown into the darkness of our own hearts and awakened us to new life, it continues to illuminate our hearts to help us to live in a way that pleases him. The question for us is, are we abiding in the light of Christ so that we might shine with that light? That's the question that confronts us this morning. And this leads to the final portion, the final element of our identity is this. We are guided by light. And aligned with God's will. Guided by light and aligned with God's will. Look at verses 15 and 16. Paul writes, look carefully then. Here's the warning. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So it begins with this warning. Look carefully then how you walk. Once again, we are aware of darkness that is obvious to us. We need to be aware of that which deceives us, that we can drift into. And we, too, must be careful. Paul writes in Colossians that we can be taken captive through false philosophies and the empty arguments of men. We need to be careful that we're not taken captive by these things. Once again, he uses this word walk, which is speaking of a manner of living. When we hear that, we need to be thinking about the rhythm or way of our walk. The rhythm or way of our life. What does that reflect in other words? One commentator wrote this and it just hit me. The weight of this statement. Listen to it. The reputation of the gospel is bound up with the believer's public behavior. Do you feel the weight of that? That if it is true that we are children of light and the father of lights is our father then we bear his name. And our behavior affects the reputation of the gospel. That in itself tells us that we can't adopt any means to get to whatever end we're trying to achieve. That the way that we live matters. And it's of enormous importance. He draws another contrast here between wise and unwise, do not live like the unwise, but live like the wise. That's in accordance with the spirit that is within us. We've already heard that Paul refers to him in the prayer as the spirit of wisdom. Wisdom all throughout the New Testament is a mark of spiritual maturity. I'm going to hold off on that. We're going to talk about that a little bit more when we get to the grounding in just a second in this last section. But listen, once again, that he may give us the spirit of wisdom. This is a gift that comes through walking and abiding in the spirit. And it's that wisdom that helps us to walk carefully. He says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. This word making is a financial term that means to redeem or to buy back. You see, here's the truth. And we know this. We feel this, that time is the most precious commodity that we have. 
Every moment is precious. And sometimes we can get lulled to sleep in taking our eyes off of the passing of time. We can begin to coast. And Paul says the believer can't do that. We have to make the best use of the time. Right? What does this word best mean? What indicates what is best? What dictates what is best? Well, we are to discern what is excellent. What is best accords with that which glorifies the Lord Jesus. So how are we to use the best, uh, make the best use of our time? We are to glorify Jesus with every second because he is supreme and he is preeminent. I love, uh, there's a list of resolutions that Jonathan Edwards wrote. And I would, you know, go look those up and read them later, but gird up your loins. Because you're talking about thick conviction. As you read through these, you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I want to adopt these. This is one he writes about this subject. He says, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. What if that is what drove us every day with a passion to see God's glory to the ends of the earth? That we took advantage of every single moment. And he tells us why we are to do this, because the days are evil. He already alludes to this earlier in Galatians 1. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. In one sense, he has already delivered us from this present evil age, but we continue to live under the sun here in this present evil age. In the world, but not of it. Here's a question for us. Do we control our time or does time control us? And in our culture that is saturated with technology, that's a good question for us. Do we control our time or does our time control us? This leads us to our identity that's given there in 16. Well, it's, it's all the way through. It's, it's this idea of wisdom and understanding. This is central to who we are. This is our identity, this wisdom and understanding. Our walk must be shaped with wisdom. That's the ability to apply knowledge, the knowledge of God. Our walk must be shaped by understanding. That is perception that accords with reality. As we come to know God and know the reality of God, that begins to shape our understanding of the reality of all else. It's like this, to go in accordance with this passage. The more that we grow into the light of God, the more that that light uncovers the darkness around us and we see the world as it really is. That's what that is a picture of. And the more that happens, we grow in this wisdom and understanding, this perception and then this ability to live out the will of God. Both of these are not just to be faculties that we possess, but the essence of our very identity. We are to personify wisdom, personify understanding as we grow into the image of Christ. And there's this contrast all the way through Scripture, especially in the New Testament, where lostness is spoken of as ignorance and darkness and deadness and blindness. In this passage, it's foolishness. And that's contrasted with those who are redeemed, where words like knowledge and light and alive and illumination and wisdom are used. Do you see the contrast? Our identity now is based in knowledge that begins with the knowledge of God. You see, wisdom and understanding are rooted in the way of Christ and the way of the gospel. The spirit not only provides wisdom and understanding for us, he is shaping us into people of wisdom and understanding. Our lives are to illuminate a better way for the world to consider. That is what our lives should do. And what is this all grounded in? Finally. Verse 17, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is this wisdom and understanding grounded in? Ultimately, it's grounded in the will of God. Paul prays for us in Colossians 1, 9. He prays, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That word knowledge there is a personal knowledge through relationship. So the idea that Paul is praying for us is that in the context of our growing knowledge of God, he would supply us with wisdom and uh, wisdom and understanding concerning his will. You see, as we grow closer to the heart of God, we will be aligned with the heart of God. And that is what he's talking about here when he's speaking of his will. We don't need to think about that as personally. He's not talking about God's will for your life specifically, what job you work or who you marry or what you do. He's talking about the will of God in big terms, the big redemptive objective of God. 
And I believe he's already spelled that out in Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, where he writes this. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Here it is. Here's the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. So what is best when we talk about making the best use of time? Any way that we can move towards uniting all things in Christ. That is the will of God. And brothers and sisters, we don't have to wait for God to write in the sky what his will is for our lives. The word reveals to us enough of God's will that we can begin to join him in his will right now. As the supremacy of Christ captivates our hearts. And the end of his kingdom becomes our passion. That is what will drive us into the dark world, living as agents of light. He goes on to say in Colossians 1, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. We can't walk in that way unless we are captivated by his will. It's the will that sets the direction for that. We have to know that. And once again, that's a work of the spirit. Where do we start? Walk with God. Abide in him. Abide in the scriptures. Get with others. Abide in the scriptures. Come to know the heart of God. Experience his love. Be matured by his love. Completed in his love. And as you grow in knowing God, his will will open to you. It'll begin to color everything in life. And we will begin to submit more and more of ourselves to the preeminency of Christ. Even as we look towards the objective end of all things being united in him. Is that our desire? Do we think on that level? Are our objectives too small? We are to align, be aligned with his grand objectives. You see, wisdom and understanding accompanies obedience. That's what enables it, the work of the Spirit through us. So I want to end with this progression. I know that I have preached too long. But listen to this progression. Through abiding in the presence of God, we grow in knowing him. Within the context of that deepening relationship, we grow in our knowledge of his will. The spirit works within us to attune us to God's will, resulting in wisdom and understanding that provides discernment to do what is best according to his will. We begin to live more in rhythm with the ways and purposes of God as the totality of our lives are aligned with the reality of God and his gospel. We come to more and more mirror the character of God as the spirit produces fruit through us that extends out to the world around us. And here's the ending. Here's the culmination. The light of our king and his kingdom emanating from our lives increases in intensity, lighting up the darkness around us. And it exposes the dark, but it calls sinners to new life. May I ask you this morning, is that your vision for your life? Is this who we know ourselves to be or see ourselves to be? Is this a picture of the trajectory of your life? Is this consistent with the impact of your life? I've thought so much of this quote by Paul. I think Gerald even quoted it last week or the week before. I'm going to do it again. This summary statement of Paul that's so powerful that most of us can recite. But Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. That is a past event that is done. It is finished. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, brothers and sisters, Paul did not view the gospel as a renovation project for Paul. When Paul thinks of his own identity, it begins with a death on a bloody cross where he surrendered to Christ. And as Paul considers his life, it's no longer Paul, it's Christ in him. And as he submits himself to that through faith, day by day, moment by moment, the Spirit is faithful to lead him in being light in the world. 
Is this our understanding of our identity this morning? Father, I pray that you would help us. Lord, help us to see the very real, the very reality of these warnings, the real danger in them, Father. Oh, God, I pray that you'd help us to guard against this. Lord, I think sometimes we live in a place that just preaches and screams to us constantly this fierce independence. And Lord, help us to see that we are completely dependent. That when we grow in spiritual maturity, we do not grow in independence. We grow more dependent on you. So, Father, I pray that you'd help us just to press into that. Lord, may it begin with gratitude for what you have done for us to reconcile us with the Father. But God, I pray it wouldn't stop there. Lord, that our vision of our life would be aligned with your vision for us in redemption, God. That we would begin to pursue your objective in our redemption. To know that the essence of blessing is on the other side of that. That you have redeemed us to bring us back to yourself. And God, I pray that we would be passionate about Spending every moment, redeeming every moment for the best use for you and your kingdom, that you would be glorified. Oh, God, help us to be light in this world. Help us as a church to do that. Help us as individuals to do that. And, Father, I pray that it would begin right now, even in these moments, as we would respond to the truth of your word. May your spirit convict our hearts, God, and may we be obedient to submit to you, our Lord and Master. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things today. Amen.